From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. I'm Jennifer Abbasi with JAMA Medical News. My guest today is Dr. Barry Popkin, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Nutrition in the Gillings School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Dr. Popkin is the co-author of a new systematic review and meta-analysis in the journal Obesity Reviews titled Individuals with Obesity and COVID-19, a global perspective on the epidemiology and biological relationships. Dr. Popkin, thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. So your analysis included 75 studies that dealt with obesity and COVID-19. Why did you and your co-authors think it was important to investigate this relationship? From a policy perspective, people have been ignoring the issue of obesity. And across the globe, we have 2 billion obese individuals, overweight and obese individuals, going on two and a half very soon. And so from a point of view of worrying about the world's population, obesity is one of the main problems that we face health-wise. And we knew from a background that obesity with the inflammatory effects and some of the other behaviors would have a large relationship with COVID, but it had been ignored. It had been ignored by policymakers, it had been ignored by researchers relative to diabetes, hypertension, and some other coronary heart disease measures as a major problem for individuals with COVID. Can you remind us about the current status of overweight and obesity around the world? Tell us a bit more about that. So we know that there are over 2 billion overweight and obese individuals across the globe. And by our estimation, it's probably closer to 2.5 billion. Not a single country in the world has less than 20% overweight or obese individuals. And in reality, many of the poorest nations are now facing overweight obesity levels of 30, 40, 50% or more. So that this is a problem not only for the countries we think about first, the high-income countries like the U.S., U.K., and Australia, which are leaders in obesity levels among the high-income countries, but also across the globe. This is a global issue. And what's the prevalence of overweight and obesity in the United States? In the United States, we have 43% of adults obese and another 25 30% in the overweight category. So that we are by far the largest country with large numbers of obese individuals. And then even if you move to levels of really serious obesity, BMIs of 35 or 40 or even 50, we lead the world in the proportions who are in the most severe categories. So most adults in the United States are overweight or obese? Yes, by far. We're talking about two-thirds to three-fourths of all U.S. adults are overweight or obese. When Dr. Popkin's team pooled data from around the world, they found that people with obesity have heightened COVID-19 risks across the board. A 113% higher risk of hospitalization, 
a 74% higher risk of ICU admission, and a 48% higher risk of death. Was there anything in the course of your study that surprised you, or did you expect to find everything that you found? No. I was completely surprised by the 113% increased likelihood of if you test COVID positive, you are going to be more than double the likelihood of going into the hospital if you're obese. And 50% more likely of dying. Those two statistics really shook me and came out as major surprises, as well as the 74% going into the ICU. Those are very large statistics, much higher than we normally expect, where you may be overweight and have a 20% greater likelihood of getting diabetes or something. This is significant impacts. And you also found that individuals with obesity were more at risk just for being COVID-19 positive. Yes, yes. Again, that possibly most likely relates just to reduced immune response. They're just weaker in an immune sense, so they can't even fight off the minor amount of COVID they're exposed to compared to other individuals. Okay, that leads me to my next question. So can you tell us about some of the potential drivers of the increased risks we're seeing with people with obesity? Absolutely. I think what's important is that we try to review across all the pathways. And we have the normal one that we've known for some time, that obese individuals' immune systems are impaired. We also know that there's a lot of metabolic dysfunction that goes on with obesity and that the obese tissue, the adipose tissues become inflammated quite readily. So those three things we've had some sense of, and they're very much linked to the increased risks of diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and kidney and liver disease. So those are known pathways. What we've also learned with COVID is that the lung capacity, which we know is impacted by being obese, and we know about sleep apnea being much greater risk among the obese, and we know that that visceral adiposity has an effect on impairing the lungs. And since the lungs are so impacted by COVID, that this has become another major factor. We've learned after a month or so of trying this out, that putting people on their stomachs helps with that. And on top of all that, obese individuals are less active just because of the heavy weight and so forth and all the related complications, knees, backs, and so on. Your paper also suggested that obesity's physical features can increase COVID-19 risk and severity and can even make it harder to care for patients in the hospital. That's right. That's right. If you consider it turning over an obese individual, lifting them up when they're very sick, it's a very complex process. In the last 20 or 30 years, U.S. hospitals have had to put in new beds, new kinds of CAT scans, new kinds of measurements and scales and things to handle the obese population in the U.S. And it takes just more staff to work with obese individuals because of all these weight effects. And turning people over into the prone position can be complicated by this. Absolutely. 
You also talked about concerns about the effectiveness of therapies and vaccines among individuals with obesity. What about that? We know that there is some reduced impact in terms of the immune response among obese individuals. So what we're strongly recommending is that we start to consider going back and looking at the trial results once they're published and seeing how they impact obese individuals in the same way they should do it for older individuals as well, because both of these subpopulations are at much greater risk for mortality and severity of the disease. And see if we need to do additional things with the vaccine to benefit them equally with normal weight individuals. What about people who are overweight? Did you find increased risks for people who are in the lower end of the higher BMI? Unfortunately, that's a huge gap. None of the papers that we have talked about, uh, one, I guess, reported the same kinds of data for overweight individuals. And this is across the globe. And that's particularly concerning to those of us who work with a vast majority of ethnic subpopulations across the globe. Hispanics, Black Americans, they have a higher risk for diabetes for Hispanics or hypertension for African Americans at much lower BMIs. And we know that the weight effects for them appear to be more severe at earlier stages of overweight and obesity. And the same goes across the globe. Indians, Chinese. We've got studies across Latin America, studies in Africa, studies in the Middle East that show that these populations for various comorbidities of obesity become risked earlier in the BMI level. So in the BMI, sometimes even 22, 23, you'll find at that point, a large increase in the risk of diabetes for our Hispanic population in the U.S. And the same would go for South Asians from India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. We find at very low BMIs, their risk of diabetes goes up significantly. So that sounds like a gap in data that needs to be rectified. Absolutely. It's a very large gap. And it's really because the world has so much focused on the measure obesity that we ignore our knowledge on these important subpopulations, which really represent the bulk of the globe's population in terms of thinking about it with COVID. And this is even true for the Chinese. They reported obese data. They didn't report overweight data. So it's not a problem only of the U.S. It's across the globe. We've kind of made it seem that obesity is a critical category because for white Europeans, for white Americans, it is. Now, what about the flip side? Did you find an increased risk as BMI increased? Yes. The few studies that looked at obesity levels of 35 or those of 40 in those subpopulations had increased risk. What we don't have is enough of those studies to begin again to either suggest doing a meta-analysis. But clearly those with BMIs over 35 and over 40 are at significantly increased risk. Okay. Are there implications in your opinion for potential future pandemics? I think that there are several. 
We talked about the medical relationships, but we need to also remember that with this pandemic, we've affected people's economics and we've kept people in their home and away from shopping. So their entire diets are changing as well as their activity patterns. Activity patterns in the U.S. and across the world are down from so many populations being kept at home. At the same time, the purchase pattern by going out for limited shopping has focused more on shelf-ready ready-to-eat or ready-to-heat kind of junk food and sugary beverages, all of which we now know are really a major cause not only of, of weight gain, but of many of the cardiometabolic problems we worry about, diabetes, hypertension, liver, kidney disease, coronary heart disease, and many cancers. So these other effects on our economic systems are profound in terms of what it's doing to people's diets. And as you go to lower income people where it's even more food insecure, we're finding a bigger concern because many of these highly processed junk foods and beverages are cheap. They're made of a lot of chemical-like things along with basic food ingredients or water, but they're very inexpensive relative to healthier food. So COVID has just added to the problem for that subpopulation. And along with the disease effects of being obese in the future, we need to find ways during these crises to provide healthier food options for all subpopulations and to be moving with regulatory actions to get people, to enable people to be able to eat healthier and try to find ways to reduce the consumption of all these highly processed junk foods and beverages. So it sounds like you're concerned that there's the potential that there will be an increase in overweight and obesity during this pandemic. Yes. We only have one small study on diet that shows that in Italy and lots of anecdotal studies from the U.S. We've done some small studies in six or eight low and middle income countries where all of the population's note their shifting and what they're buying toward more junk food. And then from a group, a couple of groups showing sales and purchase data or profits and sales for mega corporations that create most of these junk foods and beverages, we're finding their sales have increased significantly. So we know it anecdotally. We don't know the full impact of it. We don't have the weight measures to tell us what it will do to overweight and obesity or weight gains in the U.S. But everything we know is suggestive of important weight gains during this complex period. Dr. Propkin, you've been studying overweight and obesity for a long time. What do you think it's going to take to turn things around? Well, in countries we're working in, we are finding really promising changes with important regulations. So there are two that are the most exemplary, Chile and Israel. Chile implemented a number of linked programs. They put warning labels on unhealthy junk food and beverages, high in added sugar, added sodium, added saturated fats, or if any of those high in energy density. And then they banned those foods from being consumed or sold in schools, and they banned the marketing of those foods. The result of that has been 
quite interesting. What we've seen is a huge reformulation, cutting down the sodium and added sugar in foods. We found a large, a 31% decline in sugary beverage consumption in the country, which actually consumed the most in the world at the start of these these laws and regulations. And now we've got four more years with tougher and tighter regulations. We expect to see huge changes. The other kind of thing we've seen, and this is both in Philadelphia and some cities on the West Coast, Seattle, Oakland, San Francisco, Berkeley, and in Mexico. First, we saw with all of these significant declines in sugary beverage consumption with a small taxes. Only Philadelphia's was beyond 10%, and it had a huge effect. And we're seeing in the UK and in just some early publications and also in our South African research with their tax on each gram of sugar, we have seen remarkable reductions in sugary beverage consumption. The next step that some countries are working on is taxing across sugary beverages and junk food together, which I think is very important and is the next step we're going to need to see in the globe. Are you concerned about sedentary behavior during the pandemic as well? Am I concerned? Yes, I am. And it's not a matter of not going to the gym. It's just that people aren't walking, walking in buildings, walking in their offices. They're sitting at home. We need people out more walking and moving, whether it's going to a gym or just moving around in larger spaces. So we certainly need people to go out. We need them to continue going out and moving after winter comes into the north and things cool down in other parts of the country. We just need to find ways for people to move more. And you understand with people working from home, you move, you walk from your office to your bathroom and to your kitchen and your bedroom, but you're not really moving enough. So we need to find ways to manufacture movement on our own during this time when just walking to the bus, walking to your car, walking to your office, all of these things are activities that were lost. And there seems to be a growing sense that more people will continue working from home after the pandemic. Absolutely. It appears most businesses, I suspect, will reduce their office spaces and many more people will be working at home. If not every day, certainly most days. So that means even more sedentary time. Among one subpopulation, but we must realize that's only one subpopulation. After COVID's over, we will have many other groups having to go back to their work, and that tends to be much more among low- and middle-income populations. And even for them, with the costs during COVID are enormous, and the stresses on them, physical and psychological. And we haven't really addressed those, figured out how to help the population reduce their stress during this time. And I think that's adding to a lot of the consumption of the highly processed, ultra-processed junk foods and beverages. So what are your takeaways for physicians? What do you want doctors to know right now? So I want them to know two things. If they have patients who are obese, even overweight, 
they need to caution them to be that much more careful, wear their masks, be very careful when they're out and interacting with people outside their core family. At the same time, physicians don't do enough to talk to their patients about diet and activity and how they could improve even with their limited incomes or whatever they may be. And we need to do some of that. But the, we also can't shame individuals with obesity. We have to realize there's a lot of environmental causes that we need our government to remove and control and regulate so that many of these issues will of themselves abate because of what the governments do. And we're not finding that in our country. We need a government that cares more about the population's health and acts on it. Do you also want physicians to just be keeping an eye on all of their patients' weight across the board during the pandemic? I think so. I think so. And I think they need to alert people that have gained weight, even if they're not obese or overweight, because it's all a steep slope. And once you start eating differently, it's very difficult to change that. And encouragement will help. Encouragement to eat healthier would certainly be important. And because it's going to be diet changes that are going to really address obesity across the globe and overweight. It is not going to be getting everybody to the gym or running and jogging. Absolutely. With the increasing number of infections among younger people who might not necessarily have diabetes or hypertension, but might be overweight or obese, are you concerned about that? Absolutely. It's all part of the bigger problem. Obesity really is a key causal factor today. And obesity and the poor diets underlying it are the key causes for diabetes, hypertension, and many of the heart disease problems. And 13 of the major 15 cancers, as the World Cancer Research Fund has shown, are also very much linked with obesity as the primary risk factor. So we need to, as a country and as a global population, and doctors need to help us get to the kinds of regulations and laws that we need so that we can address obesity. We have not to date done anything. And obesity levels in every country in the world are increasing. I suspect we'll show that they'll slow down in the countries with the important laws and regulations like Chile. And we don't have statistics to know if they've turned it around yet. It'll take a long time. You need 10 years to really show that with population data. But we have countries doing the right things. We're not doing it in the West. So what can physicians do to encourage policy changes? I think what you need to be doing is telling them in order to get our health under control in this country, we need the medical profession to be part of the solution and to help promote the right kinds of policies. We need the AMA to start supporting some of these in a much more vigorous way. Pediatricians have been supporting many of these kinds of laws and regulations. The AMA needs to come out for these taxes and needs to use some of its lobby support, not only for health care changes that they want, but also to improve health in general. Public health is such a critical part of controlling 
diabetes, hypertension, all the coronary heart diseases, all the cancers. And we have a very high level of incidence of all of these. We're the leader in the world in many of these problems. And we need to really address it. Is there anything that individual physicians can do to advocate for policy change? Absolutely. They can do it in their own communities. They can do it with their politicians that they talk with or can talk with. And they can do it to their local societies. AMA is supporting some wonderful activities with uh, Voices for America and other groups that are part of some of your support groups. So I think that it can be done. The Heart Society is doing a lot of this, the American Heart Association. And I think it needs to be done by the Medical Association as well to really start to make an impact. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Popkin. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Not long after I spoke with Dr. Popkin, the CDC published new data on adult obesity in the United States. 12 states now have adult obesity prevalence at or above 35%. That's up from nine states in 2018 and six states in 2017. That's it for this episode of JAMA Medical News. I'm Jennifer Abbasi. Thanks to my guest, Dr. Barry Popkin at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Our audio editor was Jesse McWhorters. For more of our podcasts, visit jamanetworkaudio.com.